Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the insurance specialists at BrightThink Wealth Strategies. Find the disability insurance coverage that fits you best right now. Email Robert Smith at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. The show is also made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. We'd also like to thank Helping Hands and OSA EMR for their support of the show. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out the CE Credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. We know you spend your day caring for your patient's best interests. On our show, we want to care for you. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA industry. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7. Sharon, welcome to the studio. It's good to be here. Yeah, I can't believe you're back in with me. I know, it's so exciting, except I have to drive two hours to get here. Well, yeah, that, that kind of stings, but you know, we appreciate it, oh, the dedication. So you know, isn't that said about you a lot, that you're dedicated to everything you do? Actually... Yeah, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> I think that's true. So, and and Sharon, you know, I just have to put this out here since it's on Facebook now. That yes. can we call you Grandma? No. What are we going to call you? <laughs> Gigi. Gigi. Okay. I'm be well, a congratulations. Gigi. Thank that is you. awesome news. Now ask me what Gigi stands for. What does Gigi stand for? Glitz and glamour. Oh. <laughs> I like it. Well, you know, Pierce um, put out there, you know, that he's going to be a grandpa. So I guess he's okay with the grandpa thing. Uh, you, I don't know what they'll call him. But, you know, a friend of ours, his grandchildren call him Cool Breeze. Oh. Isn't that cool? That is cool. Cool Breeze. Huh. That, that's got to be the fun grandpa, though. Oh, you know? he is a fun grandpa. Yeah, I could see that. Well. Well, glad you're here. Glad to be back together. And I think we've got an amazing podcast lined up today. We have with us Mr. Josh Metal. Josh, welcome to the show. So glad to be here. Thanks for having me. And uh, I believe we're going to have a lot of fun. Absolutely. Well, you know, Josh and I have known each other for several years now. And, you know, we kind of met through um, you doing some mortgage stuff for some of our clients who were CRNAs. And um, kind of found Josh when some clients were having a real tough time with traditional lenders. And uh, Josh said, hey, I think I can help these folks out. And he absolutely did. And what I've come to know about him is he's one of the most positive people that I've ever met. He has a great story and background. And, and maybe I hope we can touch on that today as well. And when it comes to the housing market and real estate, I'm not sure there are many people that know much more than Josh Metal. So we're really excited to have you on the show today, and we're going to talk about this crazy housing market, and you know, you hear all this stuff, Josh, are we going to crash, or you know, are we melting up? I mean, lumber prices are up, you know, quadruple from where they were a year ago, and you know, I've got a personal story about that as well, but uh, so tell our listeners a little bit about your background, Josh, and then we'll kind of jump into the meat of it. You got it. Well, thanks again for having me. 
You know, so background, I was uh, raised in Southern California and raised by a single mother. My mom and dad were divorced before I was born. And Jeremy and I were chatting uh, before the show a few days ago about, you know, humble beginnings. Mm. And yep. we we really went through a lot of financial struggle. Uh, when I was young, my mom was a uh, striving entrepreneur, um, but there was probably more more struggle than than striving actually. And so, you know, there was a, there were moments in 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 my young life where they were really defining moments where yeah. I realized that we were uh, buying groceries with food stamps. Yeah. Um, yeah. That we lived in a four hundred square foot apartment, and th- those weren't fireworks going off outside my window at night. Those <laughs> right. were gunshots. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And uh, you know, so there was a lot of that kind of figuring out uh, or realization that I was going to have to figure it out for myself if I wanted to have any kind of financial literacy, if I was going to want to have any kind of financial freedom ultimately. And somewhere along the road, that put me on watching CNBC by the time I think my mom said by the time I was 10, I'm watching CNBC and I'm, <laughs> I'm watching the ticker symbols across the bottom. And I'm just yep. sure somewhere in there is the code <laughs> figuring out money. And, uh, and that led me to you know reading a lot of financial books. Somewhere along the line, I read Robert Kiyosaki's Rich Dad, mm-hmm. Poor Dad. Yep. I'll never forget. I don't know if you have a moment like this, but I'll never forget. I was driving down the freeway. I was probably 18 years old and had always had this kind of searching for financial freedom. And really underneath that was I was searching for a feeling of safety, a feeling of, of freedom that I didn't have as a child. And I'm driving down the road and I'm listening to Robert and he's talking, he's describing the cash flow quadrant. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I remember in that moment thinking to myself, oh my gosh, I got it. I mm. figured it out. All I have to do is just generate passive income and I have to get as much income over into the self-employed bracket and out of the W-2 bracket as, yep. as humanly possible. And as soon as I create enough cash flow to cover my expenses, I'm free. Your gravy. And, yeah. And I was like, I'd been searching for that for my whole life. And I could, you know, I didn't know all the steps between there and when I where I am today, but at least I had a plan and I believed I had an opportunity to accomplish something find from some some sort of financial freedom for the first time in my life. So that's that's kind of the voyage in a nutshell. And then, you know, I can take you from there to here if you'd like me to go deeper. Wait, yeah. wait, wait. He was 18 when he came to this realization. That's, I mean, that's, that's a amazing. pretty evolved well, male. Well, it, it, <laughs> you know, it, it, it is interesting because you, you said having one of those moments. And I remember this because, you know, Josh, you and I had similar up, upbringing. And um, I remember I worked in this warehouse and I was 16 years old. And in the warehouse, they had this big conveyor belt mm-hmm. that went all the way around and these boxes sitting on the conveyor belt. I can remember it like, you know, it was yesterday. And the, the, the track, we called it the track, the track jammed up and something had gotten all jacked up mm-hmm. and the stuff was falling off of it. So I had to climb up oh, through, the, through the building up on the top of this conveyor belt and I'm, up, I'm doing everything and I'm sitting there and all of a sudden I had this epiphany moment. I said, man. I don't want to do this the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. I, I better get my butt in gear. Mm-hmm. You know what? I, not that I was a great student in, in high school because I wasn't, but but that moment was very defining. And from that point forward, I did not make less than an A in any class I took. Mm-hmm. 
Wow. And I knew from that moment that there was another path for me, and it was a business path, and it was a financial path. And like you, I started reading all those books. I read Cash Flow Quadrant, you know, Robert Kiyosaki. I mean, all the stuff that was put out there, I started reading that and got these ideas. And then I had another epiphany moment at the early part of my career um, where someone who was extremely successful, I walked into the the back room. He was standing by the copier, um, short guy, you know, not even five foot tall, but he was big in stature. You know, he just had this aura around him and he's, he's on the copy machine and he's making a copy of something. He goes, Hey, Jeremy, I see you working hard. And he goes, let me show you something. And he showed me this check and the check was for like Mm $742,000. Wow. That was his check. And he gave me a copy of it, and he said, one day, I want you to beat this check. And he goes, by the way, come to my office. And we sat down in his office, and he's talking to me, and he gave me a book. And he said, Jeremy, this has made the biggest difference in my life and my business career. Read it, and you will be successful. The name of the book was Think and Grow Rich by Mm -hmm. Napoleon Hill. Mm -hmm. I read that book repeatedly. I remember sitting on the beach in Myrtle Beach when I was in my 20s, reading that book, underlining it, trying to figure out what I was going to give up to get this money, visualizing, writing notes, putting them in my wallet, wrote in my wallet, I want to beat this check that this, right. this fellow, you know, I remember this. It was like yesterday. I've read that book probably 15 times. In fact, I just gave it to my oldest daughter, told her to read that book, you know. So, Josh, I can totally relate to those okay. aha moments. So, I've got a question for both of you gentlemen. Um, based on what you just said, Jeremy, who are you mentoring besides your daughter? I mean, somebody, everybody needs a hand up. And so who are you who are you guys mentoring going forward? Yeah, well Josh does a great job of that. I probably don't do as well with that. I mean, I do it through client interactions and obviously this I know, podcast I feel that we give that, back. This guy did it and and you could do nothing for him. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are people here, mm-hmm. you know, internally that I, I try to do that sure, for. Sure, sure. Uh, I know, you, know. You, think you, ju- you can try and help me. I, I, some people <laughs> I, I think believe I'm cause, beyond but, you know. <laughs> but what about, what about you, Josh? Well, I coach, um, let's see, I think it's eight loan officers now in my organization. Uh-huh. And we do one-on-one coaching. Um, I'm also involved with another coaching group that's a broader scope coaching group where we do we do monthly seminars where we come together and coach. And a lot of what we coach on is financial literacy. And, you know, the, in retrospect, my whole, my whole path in mortgage was about creating an opportunity for people to achieve financial freedom through real estate. Mm-hmm. And that, that's really my, my core conviction is if I can do, if I can shed a little bit of light, like you said, if I can, you know, give somebody a hand up and reduce a little bit of fear, a little bit of pain from, from a child somewhere there, you know, that that's the moment that, mm-hmm. that I am most proud of, of what I'm doing. So I try to do it intentionally with our loan officers that I'm coaching one-on-one. I try to do it very intentionally with our larger coaching group. Um, but I, I think I can always do better, Sharon. So I'm going to take your challenge. <laughs> you know, I, I got that point too, Josh. And now my wheels are turning. I've, I've got to figure out a way to give this back. So that's that's a really good well, point, Sharon. I, and so. I just say that because both of you are 
extremely intelligent man. I just met Josh, but I would I would like to think that my superpower is being able to see <laughs> things in people. And I already knew that about Jeremy from the first time I ever met him. Very smart. But it's it, it's people like you who need to who need to share that knowledge going yeah. forward. Yeah. So well, yeah. And, and Sharon, I just want to say one more thing. You know what the what was amazing about what Jeremy mentioned was that gentleman who looked at him and said, I see more in you mm-hmm. than you do at this moment. Right. And and if we pull one thing out of this conversation, I, I don't know that there's anything greater in this world than seeing something bigger in somebody that they see in themselves. And then by extension of your vision of them, they see bigger and they the, like the whole room is bigger. The possibilities are bigger. And I didn't have that from an in, you know from an individual experience like Jeremy did but I I got it from books mm-hmm. just like he said mm-hmm. you know think and grow rich the richest man in babylon yeah. the yeah. cash flow books from kiyosaki they made me believe they mm-hmm. made me think well if they could figure it out just maybe you know maybe I could figure it out why right. not me and so I think that's the greatest superpower we have is to see something bigger in somebody else. Mm-hmm. Gosh, you know, this is really not the way I thought this podcast <laughs> would start off, but I love it. I mean, this is good stuff. Maybe we need to do another one that just talks about this kind of stuff because it's coaching, great. But yeah. I love that whole thing. Awesome. That whole well, concept. you do such a great job with that with, with CRNAs anyway. You always have. That's that's why everybody knows you, Sharon. I mean, you give and give and give and you give back and you bring people along. That's one of your strong suits is to bring people up and along. So um, so that's something I need to work on. I can, well, I can truly say that. I think we can that, all so. work on. Well, let's get back to real estate because all I right. know that this is uh, <laughs> this is interesting. And while we have these great minds right here, we need to to go with that. Well, let's talk about the 2008 uh, housing crash. And I know Jeremy and I have talked about, uh, about it a lot. Why don't you just uh, talk about it for just a few minutes, Josh? You bet. Well, I'll fast forward you from my journey from that moment, driving down the freeway, listening to Robert Kiyosaki, you know, I I too was reading Think and and Grow Rich around that time. And one of the things that he says is to write down very specifically Mm -hmm. where you intend to be at a future date and time, and then to revisit that document daily. And I think he calls it transmutation, that yep. your your world will just change by that clarity of vision in the future. And so one of the things I did was I wrote down, you know, where do I want to be in as a family man? I didn't have any children at that time, obviously. Um, where do I want to be in business? Where do I want to be in my investments? And one of the things I wrote down was that I wanted to own a hundred rental properties. Now, this is from a kid who, you know, grew up on food stamps had a, a solid B minus high school education and thought that football was going to be the path for him until he got injured and really was lost. You know, I yeah. was, I was as a young man, still fearful and not feeling very secure in myself, but I, I, I created that vision of the future and I slowly started to put the pieces together. Fast forward over the next 20 years, 25 years now, really, you know, we we have grown um, our real estate holdings. My mother and my wife and I are business partners. We own and manage about 160 doors, uh, rental real estate doors, some commercial, some residential. And back in 2008, when the crash came, you know, we had about 65 doors at the time, and we had four uh, four different renovation projects going. 
And I would literally, this is how crazy I was. I could have used a little better financial advice, to be honest, Jeremy. I don't know where you were then for me. But I had uh, I had four renovation projects going and two homes under contract. And my 100% source for funding those was future income. And wow. I just knew I had wow. to get, you know, I had to generate enough income by the closing date of that house to come up with the down payment. Robin Peter to what? pay Paul. Oh, yeah. Robin <laughs> Peter to pay Paul. But hey, at least I wasn't spending it, you know, That's at true. a nightclub yeah. or on a yeah. Corvette. Yep. At least it was going into something that was going to create cash flow. That was mm-hmm. the only yep. thing that saved my butt. Yep. But there was a moment where the mortgage industry changed, the real estate industry was hit hard, and my, my business in the mortgage world at that point came to a screeching halt. I mean, the music stopped, the, the number of buyers went from lots to little, and I had all these projects. Mm. And you know, literally just by the grace of God, we made it through that. And then we fought, we fought, we fought to keep those properties, keep them cash flow positive. I would work all day in my mortgage practice and then I would go to the properties at night and I would renovate until midnight or two o'clock in the morning, go to bed for a few hours and then repeat. And we we made it through that. But I think the, the, you know, the thing that I wanted to bring to this conversation that I'm hearing from clients now is that similarly to the Great Recession and the housing crash, housing prices have had incredible amounts of appreciation over the last few years. And what I'm starting to hear from clients is, hey, housing is at an all-time high. It must be due for a correction because last mm-hmm. time housing hit an all-time high, it was due for, you know, we had a, a major uh, drop in housing prices. Right. And I've, I've, I have dove very, very deep into the data around housing, what created the real estate recession and crash in 2006, 2008, depending on what part of the country you're in as compared to where home prices and the real estate market is now. And what I can tell you is those two markets and the the fundamental underpinnings of those two markets have nothing to do with each other. They couldn't be more opposite other than the price of the homes are at a new all-time high. And, you know, at that point, the the housing prices were an all-time high behind that crash. I mean, that's, that's pretty interesting because, you know, I've not delved into that as much, Josh. And you know, I think we hear that from everybody. You know, people are making decisions about buying homes. You know, we've got clients who are selling homes and then trying to buy another one and they're bidding the price up. Uh, they're having to come up with money at closing. These properties aren't appraising right now. I mean, there, it seems to me like there's a lot of issues lining up here along with uh, supply and demand issues, lumber pricing, mm-hmm. uh, um, you know, lack of of skilled enough workers to even build properties out there. So there's a lot of this stuff going on and probably one of the biggest investments people are ever going to make in their entire life, which is why I'm glad we've got you on here today. So unload on us. Tell us what you think. Where are we going? And you know, should we be buying properties now or is this time to as one of my clients told me over the weekend, you know, I'm selling my property and I'm going to sit on the sidelines and rent until this thing crashes. Well, and you know, the, the real estate is a local market phenomenon. So I, there are absolutely markets that I think have gone too far and don't make any sense whatsoever. Meaning that the price of the home as compared to what you could get in the rental market is so detached that I think that you know the, the band is stretched. But yep. what I want to talk about is more generally the overall health of the U.S. housing market. 
And the best way I can do that is, you know, I know this is a podcast, but it'll also be on YouTube. I would like to share a few slides and then I'm going to talk through those slides. But without some visualization, it'll be a little harder to, to really get the point across. So if I may, tell me if you can see my screen. Okay, Sharon. Got it. Okay. So let's, let's start exactly as you said, Jeremy. This is a supply and demand question. And what I want to do is get away from opinion and conjecture and get into data and analytics. So let's start on the supply side of the equation, the supply of housing. So the slide we're looking at is from the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. It goes back to 1977. And what it does is it shows the average number of housing starts per year going back to 1977. And if you were to look at this slide, you know, it goes as high as, you know, let's call it almost two and a half million homes built uh, right around 2008 per year and as low as 500,000 new construction homes built in 2009. Wow. So after we hit the all-time high, the housing crashed. Mm -hmm. But if you were to draw a trend line, Jeremy, across this chart from 1977 to 2021, generally speaking, it would average out at about 1.5 million new homes built per year going back to 1977. Right. So let's just call that the average trend line. Sometimes it's above that, sometimes it's below that, but that seems right. to be the average. Well, here's what you know people aren't seeing in, in full transparency in my eyes, is that in 2009, the housing starts peaked at an all-time high, right about 2.5 million. It was a little below that, but right about 2.5. And that was way too much supply, more supply than there was demand and housing construction crashed. I mean, it plummeted down to 500,000 homes being built per year. But here's the thing, team. It's been 12 years since that bottom in 2009. And we are just getting back to the trend line. We're just getting back to 1.5 million homes being built per year. Right. So what does that mean? That means we've got 12 years where we have have woefully insufficient number of new houses coming to the market. I would say we're approximately half a million uh, homes underbuilt over the last 12 years. And then of course, you know, COVID came and that slowed down construction last year as well. Let me show you another way to look at this. This is single family housing units completed by decade. So from 1970 to 79, we'll call that the 70s, there was 11 million housing units built. In the 80s, 9.8 million. In the 90s, 10.7 million. 2000s, 12.6 million. Well, from 2010 to 2000, end of 2019, there was only 6.5 million housing units built, wow. which was almost half, Jeremy, yeah. of what happened in the, you know, the previous decades and, and what happened between 2000 and 2009. So Josh, I'm going to interject real quick here. So, you know, we hear about millennials all the time mm -hmm. and these, that's the only thing that popped in my mind as I'm, I'm listening to you is, man, you know, um, these millennials didn't want to buy houses. They would rather rent. They were living in their parents' basements. Um, so during that time period, there wasn't a big, big demand build up for that. But now these same millennials are now moving out of the basement. They now want to buy a property. Um, they're now even having children. And is that 
another reason for where we are today? Absolutely. That's the demand side of the equation. I want to show you one more slide to really nail the point of the, of the supply side of the equation. And then I'm going to show you one more slide that I think is the most telling reason why we had the crash in 2006, 2008, depending on where you were in the country, and why we're having a boom today. And that answer lies on the demand side of the equation okay. that you just alluded to. Let now, me, let I me may. ask you a question, Josh. Does all of this take into account census? Because we're growing so rapidly. I live right outside of Raleigh, and in, which is Wake County. And there are, I think they said over 69 families a day, a day. Yeah, I moving that. Yeah. in. So does any of your data take into account that moving census total? The data takes into account household formations. Okay. And what you'll see is that our our number of new homes being built is not only drastically below those mm -hmm. previous um, decades, but we also have more household formations now. Mm -hmm. right. So you have more buyers. What it doesn't track, Sharon, is you know what we're all feeling, which is people moving from California mm -hmm. and moving from Washington and moving from New York and moving to more rural uh, communities and, and, and having net migration spike, which is mm -hmm. the same thing we're having here in Salt Lake City, Utah, by the way, mm -hmm. massive migration in. And, you know, you and I may be familiar with a market and feel like, man, the prices seem high. Yeah. We just had a gentleman that we hired from Southern California. He bought his home in 2008 for 350000 he just sold it for 1.4 million. Oh. He moved here with 1.1 million in cash and could not believe what he could buy for $900,000. I mean, he was just, he thought that thing was on fire sale, yeah. bought the home and had a bunch of money left over. So, so you're getting that too, Sharon. It, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's those things in layers that we're experiencing right now. Have you thought about what would happen if you weren't able to work for two or three years? You know, on average, 25% of people will file a disability claim, and most of us aren't prepared for that loss of income. Every CRNA needs to protect their biggest asset, yourself and your ability to earn with a disability insurance policy. We recommend contacting Robert Smith, a master disability insurance specialist with more than 30 years of experience and 1,800 CRNA clients to find the coverage that fits you best. The best way to do that is to send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call them at 504-394-6557. All right, so if I may, I want to show you just two more slides here to really drive home this point. And so we talked about a little bit about new home construction because that is how the supply of housing increases in the country. But we should also talk about the existing homes for sale. These are re resale homes. And I'm looking at a slide here that goes back to 1983. And it'll show you the number of existing homes, this is excluding new construction, that are uh, available for sale on the multiple listing service nationally across the country. Mm -hmm. And what you can see is in 2007, the peak of the market, there were 3.7 million homes listed for sale in the United States. Wow. The trend line uh, is 2.5 million. 
So once we get over 2.5 million homes listed for sale, you're going to start to move into a buyer's market where there's, you know, they're going to have the advantage over the sellers. Right. And if it's below that trend line, then the sellers are going to have the advantage because there's more buyers out there than there is supply. But if you go to the very far right side of this graph, you'll see in 2020, actually, no, sorry, this is 2021. This is current as of last month. There is 1.02 million homes for sale, almost, you know, almost 75%, 70% less than the peak. And, and here's the thing, team. There's 1.02 million homes for sale, but get this, there's 330 million Americans in, in, in the country right now. So that's yep. one home for sale for every 330 Americans. Wow. That is just woefully insufficient amount of uh, uh, supply right. of homes. Yeah, and so I'm going to just fast forward. I want to show you one more slide because this is to me what brings this all together. This is the demand side of the equation, and this is a demographic chart. It's the number of U.S. births by year and generation going back to 1928. And on the left-hand side of this graph, we see the number of birth, the birth rate, 1 million, 2 million, 3 million, 4 million. And we see that the baby boomers were a massive push in, in, in demographics where we were seeing over 4 million baby boomers being born per year. And that, that trend around 4 million probably ran for nearly 10 years. And then in 1971, January of 1971, we had Roe versus Wade pass, and we saw a natural decline of the birth rate after the baby boomers, but then we saw an additional stair step down lower. So our birth rate in the United States peaked with the baby boomers, just over 4 million, and then declined organically or naturally into Gen X and then artificially was pushed down lower as a result of Roe versus Wade and the legalization of abortion in America. Well, if you and look back, that decline, only a female would notice this, but birth control pill, 65. Oh, uh, huh. 65. is that right? I didn't birth know that. Birth control Sharon. pill. Well, the only reason why I know that is because uh, birth control pills come out in the 60s, didn't get covered by insurance until recently, but Viagra comes out and is covered by insurance in three months, but that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> that's a different podcast. Uh, yes, it is. a completely is. different podcast. But in the 60s is whenever the birth control pill come out. Huh. I did yes. not know that either. But you're right about Roe versus Wade, too. Thank you. Well, you, you, you helped me explain this the, you know, the this, stair step down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you're looking at this graph, what you would see is the population uh, or birth rate by year drop from about four and a quarter million down to about three and a half million, right about where Sharon is talking about birth control coming onto um, the scene, and then drop again down to just over three million births per year. So, you know, if you think about 25 or 30 percent less population growth, there has yeah. to be some economic impact of that. Well, the average first time home buyer in America is 33 years old. Hmm. So, if you look at this um, time chart, 
The in 2006, you see that the average number of three of 33 year olds was dropping precipitously because that's a 33 year delay from where Roe versus Wade was. And so the demographics of first time home buyers were terrible in 2006. Right when builders, you remember on that previous slide that we looked at, builders had built 2.5 million new houses right when the demographics were sinking. And that is one of the reasons why we had that crash amongst you know, other factors with you know, fake lending products that didn't qualify borrowers. But that demographic cliff, because of birth control and because of Roe versus Wade, caused less buyers and way too much supply of housing. Now, if you look at where we are today, we're in this millennial upswing where we're just about to get back to 4 million births. Well, the millennials had a period where they were having over 4 million births. And if you fast forward 33 years into the future to where the average first-time home buyer would be, today you'll see that we're having millennials turning 33 years of age, the average age of a first-time huh. home buyer, at a clip that is a, approaching 4 million births per or 4 million per year. And the last time we saw that was the baby boomers. And Jeremy, as you, as you extend this timeline out to the right, you can see that yeah. the demographics really get a lot better going forward. So, so my general thesis team is that the crash from the, from the recession, which was your original question, Sharon, was a function of three things. It was a function of bad demographics. Builders weren't getting the feedback loop. They weren't seeing that demographics and the buyers slow. Now, why, why was the feedback loop broken? Because of the lending programs. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, the, you know, everybody was convinced that housing prices could only go up and any mortgage uh, program was going to be repaid. Not because the borrower had the ability to repay the mortgage, right. but because housing prices only go up. So right. they didn't have to actually qualify. All they have to do is be able to sell the home or refinance the property and be paid off by other debt. So now you had the bartender and the taxi car driver buying 10, 15, 20 investment properties with very little money down, sketchy credit, yeah. didn't need to have you know equity in the property. And they were just hypothesizing that the values would continue to go up and they'd either refinance and pull cash out or they would sell those properties. So the feedback loop was broken. Wow. They build 2.5 million homes, which is an all-time high. And it wasn't quite 2.5, I'm ballparking here, but it was just under that. At the same time that the demographics tank, the loans dried up, and there were no buyers for all that inventory. Wow. So the way too much storm. supply. So, sounds like the crypto a, market of today, Josh. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Another podcast. Yeah, yeah that's, we can do the Robin Hood podcast for sure. That's oh, right. <laughs> uh, sounds like so, the perfect storm. Perfect storm. So, so if I could just finish this equation. Sure. You know, in 2006, we had oversupply mm -hmm. and under demand. The demand dried up because the loan products got very strict and the number of first-time homebuyers decreased by almost 30%. Wow. Today is the exact opposite of that. You know, that equation equals lower home price. This equation is different. This equation is we have 12 years of underbuilding new construction. So the supply side of the equation has been constrained because home builders, a lot of them went out of business after mm -hmm. the Great Recession. Right. Their capital that they'd been building for the last 30 years 
you know, dried up and they had to rebuild their capital to buy new land and to scale and to continue to build. So we have a lot less homes and we have for the first time since the baby boomers, 4 million first time home buyers because they're turning 33 today. These are the millennials turning 33. So you've got strong demand, you have limited supply. And the most important piece of this is that the loans that are securing these buyers today all have to be qualified, good credit, down payment, have assets. You know, these people can actually pay to debt service and pay down these loans. So very different than where we were in the crash. Well, there's something on the other end that I, uh, that's important too. (laughs) I live in an over 55 community. We sold our house whenever, you know, millennials were not buying houses at that time. Right. And we had the big house and we decided to sell it a number of years ago. We moved into an over 55 community and it's because my husband qualified us no matter what he tells other people. (laughs) Um, But let me tell you now, those places are hard to find because all the baby boomers are are reaching that point. And in the community that, I mean, they all sold out where, where I live at and people are riding through there every day and i walk and people stop and say where is an office i want to buy back in here i say honey you got to wait till somebody dies <laughs> you truly do yeah. um to get into that community well, you, so you know what you need to ask them Sharon. you need to ask them how big of a check can you write <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> i'll have to remember that uh, but yeah i mean that, that is a great point Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. So we kind of figured out, you know, what happened in 08, where we were, how that is different Mm -hmm. than today. So, Josh, I'm going to put you on the spot here. What, and I know real estate is local, you've already said that, but what should people be doing today in the real estate market? Well, it depends what type of real estate market we're in. Again, if we're on a, let's just kind of, you know, let's call the coastal areas where prices have gone incredibly high. Yeah. And there's there's no way that somebody could buy one of those properties, even with, let's say, 25% down. And the rent wouldn't cover the debt service. If you're in one of those markets, then I'm not uber bullish. I I don't think there's going to be a broad-based housing crash, but I would not be a buyer in those markets currently. Right. Then you have the more moderate markets where if you were to come up with a 20 or 25% down payment, you would still be able to have pretty darn good cash flow. And I think there is still opportunity there. I, I, I certainly wouldn't be, you know, um, trying to time the real estate market is tough, but, but going under the assumption that because prices are an all-time high, we should cash out, take all our chips off the table and wait for the next crash if you take a moment to look at the last slide we looked at, those demographic trends stay high for a very long time. Right. So the only way that we have, in my mind, a substantial real estate pullback in regards to price for the non-coastal areas, I'm talking about the rest of America, is if we see a real spike in interest rates that hurt the affordability of housing, 
And I'm a little doubtful that that happens. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I'm still a buyer in this market. Yep. Uh, and, and I believe that rents are going to go up. The yep. reason I believe rents are going to go up is because you talked, you alluded earlier about the cost of wood, the cost of steel, the cost of the chip, the microchips that are in all of our uh, refrigerators and all of our equipment now. All those things are going up in cost, which means the cost to build new houses go up, and that is going to have limited amount of new houses coming on the market which means we have less places for people to live, which means if people can't buy houses because there's too much competition, they're pushed into the rental market. I'll right. tell you right now, across our 160 units, we have zero vacancies. Wow! Never in our 25-year history of investment have we had zero vacancies. And that. And what's the first thing we do when you have zero vacancies? Raise, raise the rent. <laughs> raise the rents. Supply demand. Yeah. Supply Can demand. you raise it now? With the, Is the COVID restrictions over? You know, you couldn't raise rent. Uh, I think that was only in certain areas. Um, you couldn't evict. I, I, a- I don't have that many doors. I love that um, <laughs> as you do, but we do have rental property and you yeah. couldn't raise the rent. Hmm. You couldn't, you couldn't evict anybody for a while. Yeah. The eviction moratorium I think was extended through like September or something like that, but we didn't, at least locally in the state of Utah, we didn't have any rent um, lock-in kind of a feature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. This is good stuff. So, so Josh, let's real quick, because I, you know, I want to hit on this. Um, I'm going to transition you just a little bit here and, and talk about, um, you know, some of our 1099s. I know you guys do a lot of work with physicians. You do a lot of work with CRNAs and a lot of medical professionals. Um, and you're always my go-to guy on, on stuff like that. So can we just for a minute elaborate on maybe a CRNA like Sharon, who has just recently transitioned from a W-2 position, been a CRNA for a little while, um, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and is now in a 1099 situation. Um, what, what are those people looking at? Because, you know, there's all kinds of misnomers I see on Facebook and the Facebook groups, you know, asking questions about this. And I haven't been a CRNA doing 1099 for two years. How does all that work as we kind of well, I wrap mean, I up I can here? imagine getting a loan would be difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the real impetus behind this presentation is I don't want people to be fearful to, to buy a home. If that's the right decision for your family, if you've consulted with Jeremy, your financial advisor, and the, the payments are reasonable, don't be fearful of where the, where the real estate market is, because I don't think it's inevitable that we're going to see a crash. I think demographics say quite the contrary. Yep. So that's the first thing I wanted to say. You know, in terms of going over to a, a 1099, you know, you, th- we talked about the cash flow quadrant. Yes. Well, what Kiyosaki said was, you want to get in the self-employed quadrant, yep. and you want passive income. Yep. And so, you 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 want to obviously get to that self-employed uh, quadrant for for many reasons, but it does make it more difficult to qualify for mortgage financing. And this was a little bit of a backlash because you know after the crash, the government came in. And they, they, they passed the Dodd-Frank Act. And the Dodd-Frank Act said, there's a provision in there that says that if a bank is going to make you a loan for a mortgage that you're going to occupy, the impetus is on the bank that it has to prove your ability to repay the mortgage. And so, so then, okay, well, what's the definition of proof? And they say, generally speaking, you should have two years of self-employed income. And here's the penalty for lenders. 
if a bank does not prove a borrower's ability to repay and then goes into foreclose on them, the penalty for the lender is that the interest for the entire length of the loan is forgiven. Oh, wow. So there are huge penalties for banks to get overzealous and to put people into loans that they haven't proven that they can actually repay those loans. Oh, well, that's as a result of 2008, right? Absolutely. (laughs) That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's the well. So now we have the unintended consequences. The, the idea swung, was yeah. we want to make sure that we're not putting people in loans that cause a housing crash because they shouldn't qualify. But the downside to that, the unintended consequence is CRNA is no less able to earn income as a 1099 status as they are at a W 2 status. But the delineate the law doesn't have a delineation there. So to answer, so that's why you know people are having challenges. That's why CRNAs are having challenges. There are programs that have been able to feel comfortable seeing their, themselves through that equation. And they feel comfortable saying, hey, we don't have two years tax returns, but we do have a history in this field. We can see we have a line of sight on what the optics are for the income under this new 1099 structure. And we feel comfortable making that loan. And we think we can defend that in a court of law that the 1099 individual does have an ability to repay. So it's challenging because a lot of banks won't take that aggressive stance, but it's possible if you find a bank that's familiar with CRNA, familiar with self-employed, and can use some alternative income documentation methods. Good what point. are those banks? I mean, is it just a- <laughs> call, call Mr. Josh Metal and his team and they will help you out. <laughs> so for real, do you, it, that is something that you do. I mean, we our do. listeners can call Josh Metal and say, hey, listen, I'm 1099 and I, I want to buy a duplex apartment and help me out here because I'm 1099. And I don't think this problem's going away because we know that the trend is showing that more CRNAs are going 1099. Correct. So this is a problem for the community. Yeah. So the answer is it depends on a lot of other factors. There's credit score, there's assets, there's a lot of moving pieces, and it's how you're 1099. Are you 1099 based on you know, the work that you do, or is it a guaranteed 1099 with a right. potential for a bonus? So there's, there's, there's more details there. But what I will tell you is we have spent the last 10 years searching and accumulating every investor program that is as flexible as humanly possible to CRNA and other medical professionals. And when we, when we meet with a client, we ask them a series of questions and then figure out which one of these programs is a solution. So it's not always a yes, Sharon, mm-hmm. but it's almost always a yes sooner than what you would get with a conventional mortgage or an FHA loan or a VA loan. Because mm-hmm. yeah. yep. I know you go to get any kind of loan now. I mean, they have to know everything down to your underwear size. <laughs> I mean, it's just yeah. insane. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it really, you know, it really doesn't matter what your income is or your asset level. I mean, they're still asking these these questions and delving in. But, you now, know, I get it after hearing Josh explain, yeah. you know, the background there. That makes a lot of sense. I it mean, does. they're taking a lot of risk on from the federal government. Sure. Now, what about commercial property? I mean, what's going to happen with COVID and all of the, I mean, people working from home, what do you think is going to happen to all of that property? I'd be a little nervous now. (laughs) Yeah, I'm with you. You know, it it remains to be seen what's going to happen in the office space. I think that's what you're, Mm -hmm. you know, that's what you're speaking about. 
And, you know, I could just, you know, tell anecdotal stories, but, you know, I, I talk to clients, we own two office buildings, one of them's a medical office building, and it's 100% full and cranking. Our office where we have our, our mortgage practice, you know, there's, we've got 76 employees and teammates, and only about half of them want to come back. So we're, we're trying to figure out, is this a forever trend? Is this a 2021 mm-hmm. trend? Right. But by 2022, we're probably at a point where we're going to make a decision. Do we really need two office spaces or should we combine it and, and, and figure that out? So I don't know. I know the answer to that, but I'm not a buyer of commercial, commercial. Um, office space in this market. Yeah. I just wonder if they're going to take some of these spaces and repurpose them. And what I mean by that is we are taping from Winston-Salem and there used to be all of these tobacco uh, sale barns everywhere. Yep. And whenever all of that went by the wayside, they went in and repurposed them to apartment buildings and gentrified them. And now it's like prized property to have. So I wonder if some of these commercial properties they'll go back into because they're in prime locations because those millennials want to live where they can walk to the grocery store. You know, in Raleigh, they're building all of these uh, businesses and then they're putting the apartments above them. So you just take an elevator downstairs and you're in the Kroger's. Yeah, nice. (laughs) You know, so I wonder if they can take these commercial properties. If I had money, lots of money, you know, (laughs) that would be something that I would think of if I was an investor. And that's just Sharon Pierce and Sharon Pierce don't have the money to do it. So... (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think you're exactly right. I think that's what's going to happen to a lot of that space is it's going to get repurposed into something like lofts, cool urban lofts, um, maybe medical office space. You know, there was an article recently I was reading in the Wall Street Journal around Amazon purchasing malls and, and repurposing those into industrial space and industrial warehouse space. So with evolution, with technology improvements, here's another one for you, Sharon. What happens if we get autonomous cars? Well, what happens right. to all these parking garages? I mean, there's, there, oh, yeah. there's real estate is constantly in flux. Right. Um, but I believe if you, if you find a residential housing, whether it be a house or a, or a multifamily and your positive cash flow, I think you're going to be very, very safe. Yeah. Good, good points. Good stuff. Well, Josh, yeah. as we kind of wrap it up here, anything you want to conclude on for our listeners? No, this has been a blast. Um, you, you two are a wealth of knowledge. I think you're you're doing a fantastic job for your listeners and uh, grateful to have the opportunity to sit with you and speak with you today. Yeah, well, we, we appreciate you, Josh. Thank you for being on here with us. And Obviously, some really good information, mm-hmm. uh, even even got me thinking a little differently about things. And that's uh, sometimes hard to do in the financial space for me, but uh, but I do appreciate it. Yeah, and, well, we uh, have a lot of CRNAs out there who who do a lot of investing oh, yeah. In, yeah. in rental property and yep. all of that. So I'm sure. Yeah, there's... I think it's like anything, you know, there's a balanced approach to it and make sure you understand what you're doing and do your due diligence and, uh, you know, make the best decision for you and your family. Um, you know, I, I can't fault anybody for doing that if they're, they're doing their due diligence mm-hmm. in the background. So, all right, Sharon, well, I think that's a wrap. I think so. We want to thank our listeners for listening to Beyond the Mass with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. If you like our show and want to help us grow, Sharon, what's the best way for them to do that? Tell all your friends, share it on social media, like us, rate us. 
Love us. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, we're in the, the top 50 medical podcasts in the country, and we're excited about that. And, yes, we are. Um, you know, our goal is to be in the top 10 on our way to number one. There you go. So until next time. It's a wrap. As a CRNA, you spend years preparing yourself for this career, so we don't want to see you lose out on any of the income you've worked so hard to earn. The best way to protect yourself and give you the confidence that a major life event won't disrupt your financial future is through disability insurance. We've known disability income specialist Robert Smith for many years and have seen the work he's done with nearly 2,000 CRNAs over multiple decades. He can help identify any gaps in your existing coverage and fill those gaps by finding the best value on a policy. Contact Robert and let him know you heard about him on our podcast. Send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. Protect your greatest asset as a CRNA, yourself and your ability to earn a living by adding disability insurance to your financial plan. Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment, or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible, and we would appreciate your support. OSA EMR is a free anesthesia EMR developed by CRNAs that you can download and use on an iPad. Our nonprofit mission is to make sure that solo and small practice CRNAs can digitally record their anesthetics. To learn more, visit OSAEMR.com to download and consider donating to our cause. Remember, for CRNAs, data is destiny. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, 
fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group.